Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an idea. A quest not for a place, but into the inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Hi, everyone. My guest today has changed the lives of countless people through her teachings around self-awareness, and I should know, I'm one of those people. Once a management consultant for Deloitte, She's now a highly sought-after coach, facilitator, and speaker. She's a TEDx speaker. She has facilitated retreats for hundreds of forums throughout the world, is a renowned expert in small group dynamics and leadership development, and is a black belt master of using the Enneagram and conscious leadership models to help individuals understand themselves and others as well as to help teams foster a common vision, build trust, develop authentic relationships, and use creative collaboration to achieve better results. She recently co-authored The 80-80 Marriage, a new model for a happier, stronger relationship, offering an entirely new paradigm based on radical generosity and shared success, one that calls for each partner to contribute 80% to build the strongest possible relationship. She's also the author of 13 Guidelines for Effective Teams and a co-author of The Drama-Free Office, a guide to healthy collaboration with your team, co-workers, and boss, as well as one of the most transformational books I personally have ever read, and I've heard others say this as well, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. She co-founded Enjoy Success, a company dedicated to accelerating the growth of women leaders in business. And if you're not yet getting a sense for how brilliant she is, she's a graduate of Stanford University, where she earned a BA in international relations and an MA in sociology with a focus on organizational behavior. She's also studied at the Gottman Institute, the Henricks Institute, and Byron Katie School for the Work. Please welcome... The extraordinary Kaylee Klemp. Welcome, Kaylee. Hi, I'm so grateful to be here. Nice to see you, Michael. Uh, It's great to see you as well. And uh, I'm so grateful that you are willing to come on and speak to our audience about some of the things that you teach. We only have a little while together, and I'm hoping that we can offer as much as is is possible in this short period of time. You have so much to teach, and I know because I've learned so much from you over the years. So when I piece together a bio for a guest, 
I, I try to lead with the things, the headlines, because, you know, frankly, I want our guests to immediately be perceived by our audience as extraordinary. And I think your bio does that. But on this show, we want to get to know our guests personally as well so that we can try to understand not just the what, but the why and the how. So, Kaylee, can we start with you telling us a bit about yourself from a non-professional perspective? Let's get to know who Kaylee Klemp is. Yeah, it's it's fun to be a multidimensional person rather than just a professional. <laughs> so, personally to know me, so I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and I am now back in Boulder, which feels like a real gift. It feels like my soul is really home here in the mountains. I am, I'm the oldest of three kids. I have a younger brother, Paul, and a younger sister, Adela. And family is is really important to me. I'm really lucky we live quite near both my parents and my husband's parents, which is great because our nine-year-old daughter really has a village to support her growing up. I, I think if you were going to find me not at work, you would most likely find me out on a trail, hiking in the summertime, or on that same mountain, but skiing it in the wintertime that I just, I feel present and alive when I've got skis on my feet and powder underneath me. Classic Colorado answer, by the way, especially Boulder. <laughs> I am true to form that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've been out there and it's absolutely beautiful. When you were younger, did you have, what were your dreams when you were younger? It's so funny to think back to what I dreamt about when I was young, And I actually, I went and asked my mom to see if she could help me recall. And she reminded me that when I was in third grade, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And I find that absolutely hilarious now because I would say my fascination with the universe as a whole has stayed consistent. And my ability to do the math that that would have required is definitely lacking. I think the other piece that I dreamt about when I was young is... I was the only native English speaker in my class from kindergarten all the way through elementary school. And so the idea of living abroad and speaking multiple languages and working with people of all different cultures, I think that that started when I was really young. I see. And that's why you majored in international relations? It is, exactly. I I was Um, surprised to read that in your bio. I don't think of you as an international relations person. Yeah, my my bachelor's degree was really, it was based on that, that one of the most influential jobs I had when I was in high school, and actually throughout college is in the summer, I would teach school at summer migrant programs, which were basically schools designed for the students who moved so much with their parents, who were following various crops around the country, that they had sort of grown behind. And I was so surprised the first summer that I volunteered there and then the summers after where I was working, how few of the instructors spoke Spanish. Mm -hmm. And so it's easier. And for me, it was so deeply fulfilling to be able to communicate with them in their native language 
and then to be able to help them understand the concepts and bridge that gap. So that was where international relations came from. Yeah. I think it was a bit more on point when I got my master's degree. Sociology and organizational behavior feels like it fits my actual career trajectory a little bit more. Well, when we get into concepts like conscious leadership and the Enneagram, we should come back if we remember to international relations. I actually think international relations global relations could be a lot better if people had a better understanding of the concepts like conscious leadership and the Enneagram. While they aren't immediately connected, I think you're exactly right. They actually are. Yeah. Now, your husband, you mentioned your husband, and his name is Nate, and he's not just your life partner, is he? He's he's more than that. He's, to some extent, a business associate now, right? Yeah. You know, it's so funny that when we were initially married, we were really clear that we should never work together because we love each other so much. We were like, that's a terrible idea. And then this book, The 8080 Marriage, grabbed both of us. And here we are co-creating a book and a platform and all kinds of content. So I guess our prior selves must have been wrong. Okay, so I've read the book and and I want to let's get right into it. I think our our listeners were really interested because it yeah. really does present an entirely new paradigm, an entirely new way of thinking about marriage. So I don't want to do the talking. I want to hear from you. Tell us about the general concept and and also just where the book came from. Yeah. Well, so this book was really born because my husband Nate and I, as we were talking about we were looking around for paradigms for how to do marriage. And what we looked at is, okay, there are some really great books out there about how to communicate or some of the psychological history of relationships, but there was nothing that looked at how can you be equals and in love? How do you have a mindset that supports your relationship, but also some structures so that you can implement what that looks like? And as we kept looking and looking and looking, we kept bumping into our own stuff. So in some ways, the book was born out of our own struggle. The big idea, and you touched on it a little bit earlier, Michael, is that often in relationship, there was an old paradigm, I think like my grandparents, where the woman typically was in charge of the relationship and the man was in charge of the finances. And it was a divide and conquer model. And for several generations, that seemed to work. And then women started to enter the workplace and to pursue their own things. And I myself am, am an entrepreneur. And we thought, wait a second, that paradigm doesn't work. We should be equal. And we thought, well, that's a step forward. To make things equal, how will we know? Well, we'll, we'll know if it's fair. And we didn't really have great technology for how to do that. So we said, we'll know it's fair when it's 50-50. And the biggest problem was in striving to make things 50-50 fair, we ended up fighting all the time. And, well, I did a load of laundry. Or I, well, I was with the kids in the middle of the night. Well, yeah. I just planned our family trip. Well, I just talked to your mother, right? There was this whole sense of fighting about what was or wasn't fair, who was giving more, who was trying harder. And what we realized is if we stopped at 50-50 and said, that's as good as it's going to get, we were really going to, we were going to lose something. And so the idea of 80-80 is really about overshooting the mean. Can I strive to contribute 80%? Can you also strive to contribute 80%? 
Now, like I said earlier, my math was not good enough for astrophysics. It's probably not that great. 160% is totally a made up number. And yet when we're both striving for 80%, we land somewhere in the middle, but more importantly, we stop keeping score. And when we stop that mindset of keeping score of tit for tat, so much more love, so much more connection, so much more teamwork becomes possible. Yeah, I love it. It's it's so original. It seems so simple, and yet no one's gone there before. To your knowledge, no one's ever suggested something like this before, right? It's, it just seems you're, so simple. You're exactly right. Yeah. You know, when I was reading the book, it seemed to me that the 80-80 concept, this concept of not keeping score and and offering what you call radical generosity and this concept of really stepping up and just giving for the sake of love, it, it, it goes beyond that because what I read, and I'd be curious, obviously, since you're the author to hear your, your, your interpretation, but I, I think the other part of 8080, it's not just what you give, but it's also how you look at a particular couple. And this concept of viewing the couple not as necessarily as two people, but as as a unit, and that you're making contributions to the unit, to the marriage. Do you think is that different from the eighty eighty concept? No, it's it's exactly the complement. That mindset, this idea of radical generosity, is where we start from. It's the foundation, so that. We can do what you just described, which is create a structure where it does feel like we win together. Because I think to your point, if we start to join in a relationship as two separate individuals, and it feels like my wins are my wins, and your wins are your wins, and in some ways, we kind of go back to competing with each other. Well, who's going to win more and who's going to be more successful? We unconsciously undermine the unit. And so having a team that it feels like you're part of is huge. So once you have that mindset of radical generosity, we think about the structure of shared success, and that can feel a little bit abstract. So really what we're talking about is, do you and your partner have a shared set of values? Do you know what you're up to in the world? And it was really fun for this book. We did about a hundred interviews And hearing from different people and different couples what they really valued was so informative because it isn't the same. Just last week, we were in Yellowstone, and it was really fun to hear from this river guide that his life is complete when he skis every day that there's snow. And recognizing that he had organized his entire life so that that he got to do that. Now, I think to most of my clients, CEOs, entrepreneurs, that's not how they've organized their lives. But it's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's that it's so important to know what are your values and not just yours, but as a couple, what are your values? Because then exactly as you were just saying, um, like you can set up your priorities, you can align your boundaries, which is really just what do you say yes to and what do you say no to? And you can also design your roles so that it really feels like you're in it together. Now, if you want to take it a step further, I don't know if you've actually, if you've done this yet, 
we named our family team. It's pretty that. cheesy, but we did it. I saw that. Um, yeah. it, does it remind you of like a, it's like a corporate team building thing where it's like, now you have to name your team. You're like, really? But it's actually, it's been so powerful for us because it gives us a different way to ask the question. Was it Kajona? So, um, our team name is just, it's Kajona. Yeah. yeah. So it's the first two letters yeah. of all three of our names. Yeah. So it's K-A from Kaylee, N-A from Nate, Joe from our daughter. And there'll be a question. Hey, should I take this engagement? Or for Nate, it'll be, hey, should I write this next book? And we'll go, well, what's best for Kajona? And it's so fun because it's just a different question that lets us feel like we're aligned. Yeah. See, that's I, I think that's as big an insight as the concept of 8080. I think that's a, a, a great insight. To me, it just and this is, you know, just as a reader, I think the insight of looking at the the family as a unit and thinking about it. it I can relate to this because it's the way I think about my company. I think about our company as I do these things for, for the company. It's not about me. And if we all have that mindset, we'll all be happier and we'll be a better company. And I don't mean to, to, to be crude and compare a company to a marriage, but I can relate to that concept very, very well. I think that you're right on track. And it's funny, actually, when we originally wrote 8080 Marriage, the second part of the book was called Family Inc. Uh, and the idea was, can you think of your family and do some of the things that, of course, you do in your organization? Yeah. Things like priorities, things like values, things like roles. Can you also do those in your family? And we were told by our publisher that people didn't think about families and business as closely as we did. And so we, we changed it. But absolutely, you are in sync with the author's minds. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting stuff. Now, you in, in introducing the concept of 8080, you talked about differences in gender roles historically. So to what extent yeah. is, is this about gender? In your introduction to the concept of 8080, you spoke about historic roles associated with gender, and norms have changed, of course, although not everywhere. Mm-hmm. But m- my question for you is what happens in a same-sex marriage? Same concepts apply in a same-sex marriage? Mm-hmm. I love this question that as part of the process of writing the book, we had the privilege of interviewing many same-sex couples. And what they described was that a lot of the historical precedent and a lot of the gender norms, they weren't assumed with them. And so in some ways they had a bit of a head start in defining how they wanted to organize their marriage. So it was a bit of a template for us to see, hey, if you don't have assumptions about who's going to do what, it allowed those same-sex couples and ideally those of us who are looking at our lives from a neutral or a fresh perspective Mm -hmm. to determine who does what based on what do you like? What are you good at? What do you care more about rather than just, well, my mom always packed the lunches, so I guess I do, or my dad always took out the trash, so I guess my spouse should, that it actually gave a lot more freedom of choice. And I think that we can learn a lot from that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And again, as you said in describing the concept behind 8080, 50-50 
maybe you, you wouldn't be so absolute to say it doesn't work. It's just very challenging. You're always fighting about what 50-50 is because who knows? And so that does seem to be a concept that's going to apply regardless of gender. Yeah, totally. You know, and it's interesting. I think I might go far enough to say 50-50 doesn't work. And the reason I would say that is partially informed by cognitive biases. So in psychology, there's been a bunch of research around availability bias, which is basically just a fancy way to say, I know everything that I do, but I don't really know all the things that my partner does. So I am intimately familiar with every meal made. I am intimately familiar with every, you know, whatever it is, planned vacation or trip. But what my partner's done, it's invisible to me that, oh, they, they reconciled our finances or, oh, they made that call to the insurance company. If I don't see it, it's almost like it doesn't exist. And so the idea that we're fighting around what's perfectly fair is actually kind of like a mirage in the desert because we don't have accurate information to base that on in the first place. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit to the concept of a reluctant spouse? I could imagine a number of our listeners listening to this and saying, wow, that sounds like a great idea, but it'll never work in our marriage. I could imagine a number of people saying, my husband will never go with that or my wife will never go with that. How do you deal with a reluctant spouse? This is also, I think, such an important concept. It's so important. We devoted an entire chapter to it in the book. And really the idea is if you're interested in doing this work, if you're interested in leaning 80-80, I think there's a couple different tips. If your partner is skeptical or a little bit reluctant, I think the first piece to remember is how you introduce a new idea has a lot to do with whether or not they receive it well with curiosity or whether they're like, yeah, no, please don't fix me. If you, you know, sort of drop the book in your spouse's lap with authority and be like, you need to read this because the problem in our relationship is you, I can pretty much guarantee that it will not go very well. That said, if you say, hey, there are some exercises in this book that I think would be really powerful to do together. You know how we're always saying we're too busy for one another? It feels like maybe we could get some insight into what we're doing that's having us feel so busy by doing this exercise about what's on our boat. That gives them a way that they can engage a little bit more tangibly and with a little bit more curiosity. That said, if you're like, thanks for the tips on communication, Kaylee, my partner is still reluctant. I think that there's a piece here that's really around you. If I'm all in and it feels like my partner isn't, there's two places to go looking. How am I creating the situation where my partner is reluctant? How might I be enabling a behavior that I say I don't like? Or how might I be falling into a pattern where I keep things really unbalanced? Doing that self-inquiry often gives me a place to start to look at, huh, how have I created exactly the relationship that I have? The second piece is really just around your own mindset, where if you're going to be doing the same thing anyway, you can do it from a place of resentment or frustration, 
or you can do it from a place of generosity. So to take a super tangible example, let's imagine that I'm doing dishes. And let's also imagine that I made this meal. I could do this from a mindset of resentment. I can't believe I do everything in this marriage. I do everything in this family. This is totally unfair. And I get a whole bunch of adrenaline and I get a whole bunch of cortisol and I get to be righteous and I get to resent, but I've definitely fractured connection and I'm really making myself suffer. If I do the same thing, okay, I made the meal and I'm doing the dishes and I might have a twinge for a moment where I go, huh, that doesn't seem fair. I wonder if I can make a different request for tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm going to do these dishes and I'm going to take a couple deep breaths and I'm going to give myself some space to listen to one of my favorite podcasts, or I'm going to give myself some space to listen to some music or maybe just look out the window. It's really then about my experience rather than what's wrong with my reluctant partner. Great perspective. Maybe the opposite of resentment, which you mentioned, this feeling of resentment could be appreciation. And in your book, you talk about appreciation. Of course, maybe it's different in your other book, one of your other books, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. Living in a World of Appreciation is one of your commitments to conscious leadership. And I wasn't surprised to see you talk about the importance of appreciation. Could you speak a little bit about this concept of of appreciation? Absolutely. That in our relationships, certainly radical generosity is about what I do or how I contribute, but it's also a lot about what I see and the glasses that I wear around my partner. That I imagine that you know this in your own relationship, but I'll ask the question, I find that in my relationship, if I go looking for all the ways that Nate has messed up or fallen short or not achieved, I find them. Yes. Whereas if I go looking for all the ways that he's amazing and an incredible dad and an incredible partner and creative, I find those too. And so in some ways, I think that there's almost a beautiful relationship of call and response between contribution and appreciation, that when I wear glasses of appreciation in my intimate relationship, there's often more to appreciate. And I think naming that for our partners creates a really beautiful, virtuous cycle. And I think you can see that our listeners won't be able to. Our family got really into sticky notes Mm -hmm. and leaving sticky notes on one another's computers or on one another's bedside tables And this notion of appreciation, I love you. I was so inspired by what you said today on that podcast, or I'm so grateful for the call that you made that you know I didn't want to. Those little things, they get contagious. And actually, so we have a nine-year-old and she got into the sticky game. And so on my desk, I got a little sticky note. I love you, mama. I love you, mama. And what's cool about that to me is it's actually changing the culture, not only of our relationship, but of our family. That's that's great. And I have to admit that I've gone out of my way since I read that to offer more appreciation to my wife as well. And it feels good to do it, by the way, as well. It's a good feeling. You talk in your book also about the importance of recognizing that 
one spouse may have more of a preference to do something or have a certain responsibility or may be better at a certain responsibility. And that as we think about the 80-80 paradigm, we still have to recognize that there are certain contributions that are, for one reason or another, better made by one spouse or another. Absolutely. And the allocation of roles or responsibilities in a family or in a couple In the same way that I think about allocation of roles or responsibilities in an organization, you wouldn't necessarily ask your, oh, I don't know, your general counsel to go do a marketing campaign. That's not what they're skilled at. That's not what they're trained at. That's likely not what they love. In the same way that you wouldn't ask your, you know, chief marketing officer to go redline a contract. In a marriage, it's often the same where while hypothetically, Maybe you each could do any role in the family. Having things lean toward people's skills, lean toward their interests, helps it be much more effective. What I also think is true is that that might mean that it's not perfectly even. And, you know, in some ways, this is where I think they come back together, that if you're trying to do your roles in a way that's fair and 50-50, you kind of go back to where you started, that Instead, we want it to feel balanced. Are people giving to the relationship so that you win together rather than, you know, I'm going to make dinner on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you make it Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. I actually, it's so funny. This sounds like an arbitrary example, but I had a couple that divided it that way because it was fair. And then they were introduced to 8080 and they're having this conversation. Mm -hmm. And in this family, the husband was like, I love cooking. It's relaxing. It's creative. I feel like I'm contributing. And the wife is like, I hate cooking. It's stressful. It feels like, you know, every, somebody always has a complaint. We're like, guys, dividing this so that it's fair has both of you suffer. Letting him cook as often as he wants to is actually a gift to both of you. Right. And that was such an, in some ways, an easy shift, but such an aha, because it's not necessarily about dinner. It's about how many ways that mindset sneaks into what we're up to. Yeah. And you keep bringing up different examples. And I, I really did like that. The fact that you kept looking at real life examples, if I recall correctly, in that example, they did something special on Friday, something different on Friday, because of course, you know, seven days got to be three for one, three for the other. You had one couple that were actually experts at marriage that themselves found that they needed to rethink things. Yeah, completely. Are you thinking about the couple with the slow fades? Yes, yes. Yeah, I I think one of the real gifts that Mark and Jill offered to us, so the example in the book for people who haven't read it yet is there was a couple who they were actually, I believe, leading a couple's ministry. And then down the road discovered um, that he had been having an affair and they were like, what happened? We're pros at this. And what they realized is that along the way, there was no one catastrophic thing. It was that they had stopped revealing to each other. Mm -hmm. They had stopped knowing each other's inner worlds. And what we took from that was really two things. One, it's a journey for all of us that I think in some ways, declaring expertise in something like leadership feels a little bit safer than declaring expertise in relationship because it's such an evolving journey. It's 
ongoing work, I think, everywhere. But two is this notion that very often couples, and I would argue against the backdrop of the last 18 months where many of us spent a lot of time in the same space, we stopped having deep and meaningful conversations with each other. There is this experience that we named close, but not connected. The people were sitting on the couch together, both reading their email or both scrolling their Instagram feed, that there wasn't the pause where, hey, you've been at work all day or wow, you've been on a trip. Tell me about you. What did you learn? What did you experience? What's going on for you inside? There was sort of this, I just spent the last 24, 7, 365 with you in the same small space. I'm not that interested. And gosh, what a loss that that creates little tiny moments of separation into which we lose intimacy that keeps us close as a couple. I I do want to move on because I I really want you to speak about Enneagram and conscious leadership because I think those are such powerful concepts. But before I do, I have to ask one more question that's just coming from personal curiosity. I, I, I was trying to imagine how you and Nate wrote the book. And how is it that you did collaborate on the book? Did you decide, okay, Nate, you're going to do this chapter. I'm going to do that chapter. Did you actually sit down together and write it together? How did that work? I'm just curious mechanically how you did that. That is, it's a great question. So both Nate and I have co-authored books in the past. So we had experiences of you write one chapter and I'll write one chapter and the challenge of merging voices. We previously, 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership was Jim, Diana, and me, hours and hours, all three on the phone, typing together. So the time-intensive experience of doing it that way. Nate and I really did all of our thought partnership together. And most of it actually was walking. That we have some favorite trails here in Colorado based on where you'll find me personally. This won't be a surprise. And we would hike and do voice memos. Here's the idea. Here's an example. Here's where this would get fleshed out. What about this interview? Wow, that really illustrates this point. Well, did all of our data align there? Is there a nuance we need to speak to? And so walking and talking through all of our concepts was how the book really came together. And then Nate was our primary author of putting all the words on the page and both of us together edited and re-edited and rewrote and reconceived mostly back out on those trails. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I highly recommend the book to to anyone. And uh, at the end of our interview, I'll have Kaylee give you an opportunity to learn how you can acquire the book. But I now want to move on to the Enneagram and Conscious Leadership. In my introduction, I called you a black belt master of the Enneagram and Conscious Leadership. I hope that you're not going to make me a liar and, uh, and you're going to uh, dazzle us with your brilliance as you have dazzled me with your brilliance in the past. Let's start with the Enneagram. When I first learned about it, I thought to myself, what's this, some sort of hocus pocus stuff? And, uh, but I heard a number of people talking about it and talking about perhaps my Enneagram type and became really interested. And now I am an absolute believer. I love it. Tell us what the Enneagram is, Kaylee. So the Enneagram is a personality system. If you're familiar with Myers-Briggs or the PI or the DISC, in some ways it it fits in the genre of personality systems, 
But why I love the Enneagram is because it's really asking the question, why? What is the motive behind whatever that behavior it is? And what's so powerful is that when you're able to know the why behind things, behaviors that previously didn't make any sense do. And your own thought patterns start to be something that you can recognize and help shift. So I love it for the ability to experience empathy for other people, for the insight into what's really going on with me, and also for the growth trajectory that it provides. That in my experience, some personality systems, it feels almost like a diagnosis, where it's like, well, Kaylee, you're an extrovert. Good luck with that. And what I love about the Enneagram is there are gifts and attributes of every single Enneagram type. All of the nine have qualities where they are beautiful and valuable and contribute a ton. And each and every one of the nine types can be a thorn in people's sides, have patterns of thought and behavior that are ineffective. And the Enneagram gives us, I think, a head start in recognizing them and really powerful tools to help bring out our best and the best in others. But to some extent, it's an example of arguably determinism in that I believe the concept behind Enneagram is we are born with a particular nature and we can have healthy and unhealthy versions of that nature. We can have full awareness or no awareness, but our nature is our nature and there's nothing we can do about that. Yeah. Yeah. It it is true that I, there was a study that had absolutely nothing to do with the Enneagram where they were looking at the temperaments of babies in a maternity ward right after they were born. I believe it was in the New York hospital system. And sure enough, there were nine temperaments. And again, because that research was done completely separate from the Enneagram, that it maps perfectly to me was pretty telling. And just because you have a temperament to your point doesn't mean like, well, bummer, I guess you're really stuck. It's all about working with that to help accentuate the best qualities and to help minimize the ones that would get you in trouble. So how do we find out what our particular Enneagram type is? So there there are two different ways that I think work. One is if you are a reader and a seeker, you can pick up any number of Enneagram books or um, head to my website. There are videos on the different types and watch through all of them to see which one resonates with you. I personally am a huge fan of the test on the Enneagram Institute website. It's, I think, $12, so relatively affordable, and it gives you a lot of direction. Which types should you pay attention to? Which types can you sort of not pay attention to? Mike, as you know from your experience, just because you get a high score on one type doesn't necessarily mean that that is your type. That's just an indicator. It points you in the direction of inquiry to say, what about this resonates? And which of these types provides for me the most insight around my growth journey? Kaylee, maybe the best way for us to learn a little bit more about the Enneagram would be for you to describe some of the Enneagram types. And one thing I really like, if you're able to do it off the top of your head, is when you you give examples of famous people who are that particular Enneagram type. Sure. So 
we'll see how quickly we can make it around the circle. And I want to give the huge disclaimer that um, the Enneagram is something that I work with individuals and teams with for you know days. And in some ways, the Enneagram for me is a lifetime journey. But as we travel around the circle, so there are nine Enneagram types, and we'll start with type one is the reformer. And each and every Enneagram type gets what I think of as an organizing principle or a through line. In the literature, it's called the essence quality. And for the one, that's about goodness. And so when ones are at their best, that's about principles, that's about nobility. And when they're at their worst, that can feel judgmental and perfectionistic. You might think about Gandhi as a really famous Enneagram type one. I believe Nelson Mandela. The idea of what would I do for the principle of it really connects us to type one. Right next door, type two, the helper is really about care and is about attunement to others. And that through line of love or care means that twos at their best, they know what other people really need, often even before those folks even know they need it themselves. And where twos will really get in trouble is being so other-oriented that they forget about themselves. So you might think about like Bishop Desmond Tutu is a really beautiful example of type two. For Enneagram type three, we'll use our, our dear friend, Michael Nathanson, as our, as our example. Threes are all about value and value in terms of how do I show up in, a, in the world in a way that is valuable? And also, how do I know what other people value so that I can organize myself to match that value exchange? Where threes get themselves in trouble is that they get so attuned to making sure that absolutely everything they do adds value that they can forget just to be and experience life from that place of grace. Additional famous threes, you might think of Tiger Woods or Michael Jordan and sort of top of their game, Oprah Winfrey wanting to really be the best of the best. That's good company for me. Yeah, I love hanging out with threes. I feel like Threes make me want to be my best self. Uh, type four is called the individualist. And it's really organized around the principle of depth or purpose or meaning. And so fours at their best are really able to see what is unique, what is special, what is significant about life, about a situation, about a company. They're really creative in their ability to experience the world. Where fours will get themselves in trouble is needing to be different for the sake of being different, sort of uniqueness as a protest against the ordinary. So you might think about like a Lady Gaga or a Johnny Depp, Apple, the computer company, like different is good. Type five is the investigator. Five is really organized around wisdom. And Type fives at their best are able to push out the bounds of what can be known, absolutely enamored with the pursuit of data and the thoroughness of understanding. So you might think theorists or those who are inventing things that are new. At their worst, fives can get stuck in their head where it's a fixation about the idea and you never quite have enough information rather than putting those ideas out into the world. Some of our most famous fives are folks like Freud or Einstein or Newton, also really great company. 
Uh, type six is the loyalist. The loyalist is really organized around this essence quality or through line of security or trust. Sixes at their best are known for their relationships, that sense of community, camaraderie, really a trusting team, and also for the systems and structures and institutions that they create. The ability to bring those together, both relationships and structures, into something that you can rely on. Sixes at their worst, though, start to feel like, I'm not sure we can really trust anything. And ooh, I'm also not sure that anything is ultimately safe. And so they can start to second guess or feel a little pessimistic. My most favorite six is actually a fictitious character who is Branch in the movie Trolls. Um, But as you're thinking about famous sixes, you might think about Jennifer Aniston or Tom Hanks, who feel like they could be your neighbor. Actually, I wonder, I don't actually know if Mr. Rogers is, but neighbor, neighborly Liss is certainly in his wheelhouse. Type seven is the enthusiast. Enthusiasts are organized around joy and freedom. Really this pursuit of vision of the possible is their wheelhouse. Sevens get themselves in trouble being scattered, sort of being so excited about the idea that they forget that it then needs 40 or 400,000 hours of implementation. Famous sevens, you might think about Richard Branson, um, sort of that classic entrepreneur. What else is possible? Uh, I also think, oh goodness, I just forgot his name. Pet detective. Oh, who is that actor? He's Ace Ventura. Oh, uh, yeah. Jim Carrey. Yes. Jim <laughs> Carrey. Thank you. And he's passed now, but Robin Williams, famous seven. Oh, yeah. Type eight is the challenger. And um, challengers, the through line is strength. Their gift in the world really about making the impossible happen, being willing to challenge assumptions and really bring into reality things that perhaps other people thought weren't possible. Below the line, um, or when they get sort of stuck or at their worst, eights can be overpowering or controlling, sort of strong at the uh, expense of relationship. Famous eights, you may think of Martin Luther King Jr., really famous eight. And then finally, type nine, the peacemaker right at the top of the Enneagram. The through line for the nine is peace. And nines at their best are able to see multiple perspectives. Think ambassadors and able to really bring together and synthesize what might initially look like disparate ideas. And when nines get at their worst, they, they sacrifice themselves and their own perspective for the sake of peace. So say yes, when what they really mean is no. So many famous presidents in the United States actually have been nines. One of my favorites, I believe, was Abraham Lincoln or uh, Ronald Reagan. So one of the fastest tours around the Enneagram that I've done, but those are our nine types. It's a great way to, to educate people on the general concepts and how it works. And for those that are looking to learn more, we don't have time to get into it now, but there are ways that different Enneagram types work well with each other, and there's so much to learn. I'm still learning, but uh, I've learned a lot about myself and about my family members and the people that I work with, and it's really a great way to have better awareness around yourself and others. I love that you framed it that way because I think it is such a gift in families and on teams and as an individual for personal and professional growth, it's sort of the universally applicable 
tool to help you help you grow. Yeah, it, 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 it's been great. It's been a, it's been a game changer for me and I highly recommend it. In your conversation just now, you were talking a bit about one of the Enneagram types and you talked about the below the line version. And that just reminds me of the importance of getting into conscious leadership. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak about this concept, about which you wrote a an outstanding book that, again, it's a game changer for me, something that's changed my life, the way I think about things given me much better awareness around myself. I've referred it to so many others. And could you tell us about conscious leadership? Absolutely. Well, first, thank you. Thank you for sharing the idea with so many people. Thank you for referring and recommending the book. So the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership is really all about primarily two different ways to experience the world. While there are four different ways of being in the world, we really focus on two. One, which we call above the line, is living in the world from a perspective of curiosity, of openness, of a commitment to learn, and most importantly, the experiences that I am a creator in my life, that life is happening by me in contrast to what we call below the line, which is where it's closed, it's defensive, and really the experience there is that life is happening to me. And so each of these 15 commitments gives you an opportunity to look at a specific dimension of leadership in particular and say, what does this look like above the line? And what does this look like below the line. So just as a, for instance, we could look at, well, what does responsibility look like? Well, above the line, it looks like a hundred percent responsibility that I take no more than a hundred percent, no less than a hundred percent, that it's really about how am I participating in whatever this circumstance is and what can I learn from it? In contrast, if life is happening to me, If I'm below the line, then I'm very likely stuck in victimhood where I'm at the effect of life circumstances or I'm in villain where I'm blaming someone or something for how my experience is or I'm in hero. I'm taking more than my 100% responsibility trying to rescue or trying to step in and create temporary relief so that I don't have to feel that thing that I don't want to feel. And we go through lots of different leadership attributes, feelings and candor, appreciation, which is certainly connected to 80-80 marriage. Also things like, can I see the opposite of my story? All of those different pieces are able to be overlaid on this line. So that's a, a teaser to conscious leadership. Yeah, it's great. And that really is just a teaser. There's just so much there. And I wish we had more time. I I, I did want to talk a bit about your TEDx talk. I'd seen it before, but I watched it again. And it's called Stop Trying to Change. And I thought about how it's just so consistent, Kaylee. And I'm going to let you speak to the message. But to me, the message just seems so consistent with some of the messages I've seen in, you know, throughout all of your work and the different aspects of your work. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I, I love that you said that, Michael, because I think that already, even in this conversation, we've talked about it a bit. 
in reference to the Enneagram, that your primary type doesn't change. You get to be who you are, but are you your best version or your worst version? So my TEDx talk, Stop Trying to Change, was really born out of this experience that I had coaching executives where they would get 360 feedback. And, you know, people would interview their peers or their direct reports. And that leader would sit down with their 360 report and they would swallow the feedback hole. And they would say, I am going to completely change based on this feedback. I'm going to be totally different. And a year later, their 360 feedback would come back and they would have made progress. They would be growing, but they wouldn't be a completely different person. And in some ways they would get frustrated. They're like, why didn't I make a 180? And it really led me to recognize that the problem, if you will, with trying to change is that people throw out the gifts of those qualities. That rather than recognizing that there is something so beautiful about, for instance, the desire to bring everyone on and the desire to create consensus All they would see in their 360 feedback is you make slow decisions or it takes you too long to do things. They'd be like, I'm going to be fast now, but they would throw out consensus building and alignment in the process. So my TEDx talk is really based on this belief that people get to be who they are. And I really want to empower people to be that best version of their authentic self. Yeah. You, you talk about, it's just about growth. It's just understand who you are. That's not going to change, but just grow, just grow from there. Totally. You know, it's so funny too, because in the end, if you continue to grow a tiny amount incrementally, one degree at a time, if you've ever looked at the diagrams where ships end up in the wrong port, it's because there was a one degree navigation shift. So I actually believe that our life trajectory has the ability to be profoundly different if we grow just one degree incrementally over time. Okay. Well, that's great. I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions now that I like to ask all of our guests as we, again, seek the extraordinary and try to understand better what it is that's made you so extraordinary. So the first question that I'll ask is, what single tip would you offer that has helped you be your most extraordinary self? I think the best tip for me is everyone has a story. And so listen so that you can learn. That's great. What's the best advice you've ever given to or received from someone else? Best advice I think is what got you here won't get you there. So keep learning. Don't just repeat what you've done before. Keep learning because what that next situation requires is likely something that's new and improved and enhanced. I love that one. I'm all about continuing to learn. And speaking of which, what have been your biggest learning opportunities, which some people might refer to as mistakes? You know, I I love that you refer to it as a learning opportunity because I really believe that Every moment in my journey is a key part of me being where I am. And I think for me, it was starting my career in traditional consulting. And I think I learned a ton about how companies work and how they're organized. But if I had to go back and do it again, I realized 
I am so much more interested in the human dynamics than just the systems. I wonder what would happen if I got some of those years back. Yeah, I, I actually got schooled on this topic by the great Bonnie Blair and Dan Jansen because I asked them, I used to ask guests what their biggest mistakes were, and they both said, there are no mistakes. They're all learning mm-hmm. opportunities. I agree with them. Yeah, well, I do too, and I've changed my I learned from that, and that was a great learning opportunity for me. Who are your key role models and mentors? So Gay Hendricks has been a huge influence for me. He was the author, he is the author of Conscious Living and Conscious Loving. And I find that his work, Gay and Katie Hendricks together, their work has really influenced how I think about certainly conscious leadership. Cliff Berry and Mary Ellen Blanford were also really instrumental in getting me started in my own learning journey. So I feel really grateful to them. And my parents are really tremendous people. We could do a whole episode about how great my parents are. And then I was thinking about sort of a a mentor from history. And for me, the idea that Gandhi lived around be the change you wish to see in the world That feels to me like a role model and an inspiration that I strive to live by. Fantastic. Great answer. Kaylee, do you have a personal mission? I'm not sure that I would call it explicitly a personal mission. And there's nothing written on my wall. But I think to myself, if I am able to live to my full potential and to help others live theirs from a place of abundance and gratitude and love, I think I'll call this a life well lived. Yeah. Well, and I, and normally I would ask about legacy, but you've just answered that question too. It sounds like that will be your legacy one day. Yeah, that's great. That is my hope. Well, thank you, Kaylee. That was a spectacular interview. Really interesting. Again, I could go on. These are such important topics and you have so much to teach. How, how can our listeners get your books? All of the books that you reference, so 8080 Marriage, 15 Commitments, Drama Free Office, are all available anywhere you get your books. So certainly Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local independent bookstore, wherever you get your books, those are there. Great. And do you have a website? If if people want to learn more about you personally, if they want to learn more, you mentioned earlier that the Enneagram, that they could get information about the Enneagram from your website. Yes, my website is kayleeklemp.com. And the website for the 8080 marriage is 8080 marriage, so 8080marriage.com. On that website, there are a lot of free articles, free resources, things like epic date night guides that you can download for free. On my website, there are also free resources around conscious leadership, around the Enneagram way to get you started on your learning journey with some of these tools. Yeah. And again, I highly endorse that book. I I had a a law professor that pointed out at the time something I hadn't thought about what, but now is obvious to me, which was that the most important decision you make in your entire life is the decision around your spouse. And uh, it's certainly worth investing in, in that relationship and learning more about how to make that the best relationship possible. Thank you, Kaylee. And again, just want to thank you for for everything you've done for me personally and everything I've learned from you. And that is the extraordinary Kaylee Klemp. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. 
The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with 16 offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit www.thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ and learn more about my ongoing search for the extraordinary.